Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled State of the Union Advances in the Management of Metastatic Urothelial Cancer is provided by Prova Education. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Welcome to the Metastatic Urothelial Cancer Educational Series. In this first chapter, we're going to be setting the stage for this series in its entirety. This is CME on ReachMD. My name is Arjun Blar. I'm a medical oncologist and director of the GU Medical Oncology Program at NYU Langone Health's Perlmutter Cancer Center. And I'm joined for this session by Dr. Daniel Petrolak, professor of medicine at Yale Cancer Center. Welcome, Dr. Petrolak. Good morning, Arjun. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for joining me. So let's get started. I want to start off, Dr. Petrolak, by inviting you to just give us a brief overview of bladder cancer and the novel therapeutic options, and and just quickly cover just briefly a little bit about the disease and some of the advancements that we've made over the last few years. Thank you, Arjun. So bladder cancer is the sixth most common cancer in the United States. 83,730 patients will be diagnosed in the year 2021 with approximately 17,200 deaths. The average age of diagnosis is 73 years. It's predominantly males who are diagnosed with this disease. It's a three to one ratio. And we've identified risk factors for urothelial carcinoma. These are those that will cause damage to the cells, such as smoking as well as uh, chemicals, particularly the aromatic amines and the aniline dyes. When bladder cancer is diagnosed, predominantly it's superficial. In 75 to 80% of cases, about a quarter of these patients have muscle invasive disease, and then 5% of patients are diagnosed with metastatic disease initially. So it's not as common to be diagnosed with metastatic disease, but uh, predominantly non-muscle invasive uh, and superficial bladder cancer. So there are a number of different targets that we're now beginning to evaluate in bladder cancer, and these include the uh, PD-L1, PD-1 axis, FGFR3, which is expressed in approximately 20% of urothelial carcinoma specimens. Paradoxically, it's expressed at a higher rate in the non-muscle invasive disease. Uh, these are markers that we check, and we'll go into that in the next section at uh, various points in the treatment of urothelial carcinoma. But there are other targets that really don't need to be checked, which are fairly prominent in this disease, and these are targets for treatment in advanced disease. These include nectin, which we have an antibody drug conjugate called nefortimabidotin, which targets nectin, and also sasituzumab govotecan, which targets a target called trope 2, which is exp- expressed in a variety of different epithelial cells. So the disease has advanced in terms of treatment over the last several years. It's been a rapid explosion in the targets and the therapeutic modalities available to treat those patients. Fantastic. You know, so, you know, one of the key questions here at this point is, you know, what is the role for biomarker testing in advanced urothelial cancer? And one of the often questions that we get is, you know, uh, what biomarkers do we use and when do we test for them? Uh, Dr. Petrolek, I'm sure you're aware of PDL1 expression testing that we do routinely. And also you kind of alluded to uh, the role for FGFR testing. I'll quickly cover that, you know, as per NCCN guidelines, and we had uh, Erdafitinib, which was approved in April of 2019 on the basis of the BLC 2001 study, that biomarker testing has a pivotal role in the treatment of advanced urothelial cancer, but it should be done in unique clinical settings. I want to quickly review those. 
So PD-L1 expression testing is really restricted for patients in the first-line metastatic urothelial cancer testing where patients who are ineligible for cisplatin-containing chemotherapy and you're making a decision between carboplatin-based treatment or uh, first-line immunotherapy with either atezolizumab or pembrolizumab. In that setting, the FDA label suggests that PD-L1 expression testing can be of value. Patients who are positive for PD-L1 expression using the companion diagnostic for either atezolizumab or pembrolizumab, those patients may be eligible for treatment with pembrolizumab or atezolizumab. However, patients who are absent or low levels of PD-L1 expression in, the, in that context really should not be offered first-line immunotherapy and rather should be treated with platinum-based chemotherapy. There is a clinical scenario where PD-L1 expression testing really doesn't have value, but and that's really for patients who are entirely ineligible for platinum-containing chemotherapy. You know, Dan, you and I see these patients all the time. These are the late octogenarians, the nonagenarians, the very elderly and very frail patients with very poor performance status and very poor renal function who are really not candidates for multi-agent chemotherapy. And in this context, really, you know, immunotherapy is probably one of the only safe options for them. And there you just give the immunotherapy and, and PD-L1 expression testing really has no value. After first-line treatment, uh, PD-L1 expression testing has no real uh, role because we know in the platinum refractory and beyond setting, uh, single-agent immunotherapy is better than the standard of care, which is single-agent taxane uh, or vinflunine in the European Union. So, you know, beyond the first-line setting, PD-L1 expression testing has little value. Now, next-generation sequencing, FGFR, can be tested at any time, but once you've tested for it, you don't need to keep testing for it. And right now, the FDA label for Erdofit includes uh, gene fusions or translocations in FGFR2, translocations in FGFR3, and these are, you know, the so-called activating gene fusions, such as the TAC3 FGFR gene fusion, and then also activating uh, point mutations in FGFR3. Now, we're still understanding the role for FGFR signaling in advanced bladder cancer, and perhaps there may be a larger net to cast, so to speak, but other those trials are still underway. But right now, approximately 20%, as you mentioned, are potentially eligible for or to fitnib. But again, I think we're still learning about the true role uh, of FGFR signaling uh, in advanced disease. And certainly survey results demonstrate now that, you know, we're using F biomarker testing in various lines of treatment, but we do need to do a better job in terms of how, you know, patients are both counseled about the role for biomarker testing and how we're implementing them in practice. Now, I want to pivot over a little bit to our most recent, you know, meeting at ASCO 2021, which just wrapped up in June. Uh, a lot of trials were presented in the GU space and in particular bladder cancer. So Dr. Petrolak, do you want to comment about any trials that really stood out to you that you thought were noteworthy? Well, well there were three presentations which I thought uh, were, were extremely important. Firstly, there was a presentation that looked at single-agent pembrolizumab uh, for those patients who are platinum ineligible in uh, the frontline setting. This evaluated this drug, and we now have five-year data with this particular study. The objective response rate overall was 29%. Uh, the median duration of response is actually pretty impressive at 33.4 months. And the overall survival is, is consistent with original presentations, 11.3 months. Another issue which was not unexpected uh, was the fact that those patients who had a CPS score of more than 10 were more likely to respond than those patients who had a CPS score of less than 10, and these responses were durable. And this supports the FDA indication for, for pembrolizumab as a frontline treatment for those patients who are poor cisplatin ineligible. Overall, the objective response rate for those patients with a CPS of greater than 10 was 47.3% and 20.7% for those patients with a CPS of less than 10. 
really no different safety signals were identified, and this supports the use of pembrolizumab in those patients who are cisplatinum eligible with locally advanced or metastatic urothelial carcinoma. Moving forward to some combinations for cisplatinum eligible patients, it makes logical sense to combine fortimab vidotin and the uh, antibody drug conjugate that I mentioned before, and checkpoint inhibitor. So there's been a phase one trial, EV103, that has been evaluating that combination. A slightly different dosage of infortimab is administered. It's 1.25 milligrams per kilogram given on day one, day eight. The FDA approval right now for infortimab is day one, day eight, and day 15 of a similar dose. Pembrolizumab is administered 200 milligrams Q3 weeks. The response rates are very impressive. Uh, the confirmed objective response rate, which was updated at the ASCO meeting, was 73.3%. These responses were generated irrespective of PDL1 status. So PDL1 negative patients responded, PDL1 positive patients responded. What I think is impressive is the updated survival data with a median follow up of nearly 25 months. The median overall survival is 26.1 months. I think that's the, that is actually the highest response rate I've seen or survival rate I've seen in patients who are platinum ineligible or for any combination therapy. It sure beats gem carbo or, or other uh, single agents. So this is impressive data. Really no new safety signals were generated with this update. And again, uh, fa- randomized trials are needed to see whether this is the right combination to use in platinum eligible patients. This is currently, as part of EV103, a randomized trial comparing infortimab to infortimab combined with pembrolizumab. An update of the EV201 data was presented. This is the second cohort. Again, those patients who are cisplatinum ineligible, platinum naive, and who had had a prior checkpoint inhibitor. This is a presentation of 89 patients who were entered on arm two of the EV201 study. And again, we're seeing the same high response rate within fortimabidotin, a confirmed objective response rate of 52%, with 20% of patients having a complete response. What I think is also impressive about this data, and again, impressive about infortimabidotin in general, is the fact that patients with hepatic metastases have a high response rate. 10 of 21 patients with liver metastases responded for a 48% response rate, and that's really higher than what we see with any single agent in this disease. Uh, And actually, combination therapy really does not yield that same response rate in liver. So in summary, again, really an impressive overall median survival. No new safety signals were generated or at least presented at this particular poster. And uh, again, randomized trials need to confirm the role of infortimab, vidotin combined with pembrolizumab in platinum and eligible patients with urothelial carcinoma. Thank you so much, Dr. Patrilak. That was a wonderful review of really some of the highline data from ASCO 2021. Before we wrap up, just give us one key takeaway from ASCO 2021 and just for this chapter in general before we move on to the next one. I think that the, the key takeaway is that the future of urothelial cancer treatment is bright. We have new agents. We've really come a long way in the eight years that, that we've been working with checkpoints. Now we're looking at novel combinations of checkpoints plus ADCs and perhaps checkpoints with some of the other tyrosine kinase inhibitors as well. So there's a lot of work to be done in improving these agents to be superior to standard of care. Thank you so much. In chapter two, we'll be discussing three different patient cases to demonstrate the optimal therapy selection in the management of metastatic urothelial cancer. So please stay tuned.
Welcome back. In the first chapter, we covered novel therapeutic options for metastatic urethral cancer based on the pertinent biomarkers. We also discussed the recent clinical trial updates for metastatic urethral cancer presented at ASCO 2021. And now on to chapter two, we're going to be using three different patient cases to demonstrate the optimal therapy selection and sequencing and how we approach this disease. So let's start, start off with case number one. So Fred's 68 years old, and he has a history of, he was diagnosed with, uh, initially with metastatic urethelial carcinoma. Platinum eligible, he had a creatinine clearance of 65, and uh, he received six cycles of gemcitabine and cisplatinum, and he had metastatic disease to lung, and that result, the treatment resulted in a partial response. We had a discussion with Fred about the use of maintenance checkpoint therapy after his initial uh, response, but he decided that he didn't want to go forth with further treatment at that point. We monitored the patient with CT scans every three to four months, and then six months after he stopped his chemotherapy, he developed disease progression in lymph nodes and was treated with a pdl one antibody. That response lasted 10 months, and he has now progression both in liver as well as in lung. Great. So we, you know, we encounter this patient all the time. You and I have met Fred so many times in our in our clinical practices. And and in this setting, you know, in the third line setting, I think, you know, before the advent of antibody drug conjugates and importantly molecularly targeted agents. You know, we most often, you know, we would counsel a patient like this uh, for best supportive care um, and, and often hospice because we didn't have anything beyond checkpoint blockade. Now, granted, you know, checkpoint blockade only became available in 2016. So we can't even say that that, that, that is something that we've been doing for a very long time. You know, so I want, you know, it's in this setting, it's really important to understand, you know, that some of the most important critical things to think about here is, you know, a patient who's progressing like this in liver and lung, you know, the data from prognostic studies show that in the treatment refractory setting, patients with liver metastases in particular have a median survival of often four months. Um, and and so treatment options in the setting are a critical unmet need. Um, what we didn't mention here in this, you know, case is, you know, molecular testing, next generation sequencing, you know, what's the value here? Now, whether it was done at the initial biopsy or, you know, biopsy at progression, at some point in time, a portion of tumor tissue absolutely should be, uh, should be collected uh, for next generation sequencing. And if, you know, one is not available or safely accessible during the course of treatment, uh, then a liquid biopsy using ctDNA can also be used uh, to identify targetable alterations. And so here we're going to look for also for uh, FGFR mutations in, in FGFR2 or FGFR3. And then that'll give you the sufficient information you need to make a treatment decision. And right now we have three potential FDA-approved options for patients in this particular situation. Two that require no additional testing, that's both Enfortimab-Vidotin and uh, Sasitizumab-Govitecan. Those are both antibody drug conjugates. I should mention that Enfortimabidotin now has regular approval and has demonstrated a survival benefit on the basis of EV301. And then Sasitizumab-Govitecan, which targets trope 2. It's an antibody drug conjugate with a payload called SN38. Uh, recently received accelerated approval on the basis of the Trophy U01 study just earlier this year and had a 27% response rate uh, in that study. 
But neither of these two drugs require any sort of biomarker testing and is readily available in this clinical scenario. Uh, Ertafitinib, as I mentioned, does require biomarker testing and uh, would be a, a very reasonable option as well in this patient, but again, requires uh, that the patient has a activating alteration in either FGFR2 and FGFR3. So that's how we would approach this patient in this clinical scenario. And again, Dr. Petrolak and I, and I meet Fred all the time in, in this setting, and, and, and we're glad to say that we have uh, those three available treatment options for this patient. So now let's jump ahead to the second patient case. And this is Beverly. Now she's an 81-year-old woman who has you know, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, chronic uh, kidney disease, stage three. And she presents with metastatic urethral cancer to lymph nodes in the lung. This is, a, this is also a woman that we meet often in our, our clinical practice. And I would say that we are seeing more and more of these patients now than we ever did before because of the advent of immunotherapy. And many of these patients could not safely receive multi-agent platinum-based chemotherapy just because uh, of their advanced age and their medical frailty. And, and Beverly receives uh, first-line immunotherapy with a PD-1 or PDL one antibody. She tolerates treatment well. She develops some mild pruritus, um, some uh, grade 1, grade 2 skin rash that we treat with topical steroids and antihistamines. Uh, but she develops a partial response that lasts over 12 months. And we, see, we do see this in clinical practice often. Now she has developed, however, new disease progression and new liver metastases uh, after 12 months of achieving a partial response. Uh, she still maintains a reasonable performance status at ECOG PS1. She still has stage three chronic kidney disease. This is something that accompanied her at the time of diagnosis, and she still has it today. She's a year older, right? But she's still interested in receiving more treatment for her cancer. And so now you're presented, you know, her, and now how do you approach treatment options in this setting? So Dr. Petlak, how, how do you approach Beverly and, and, and have these treatment discussions with her? So this patient is a cisplatin ineligible checkpoint experienced patient and there recently was an FDA approval for infortimavidotin for this particular group of patients. As we saw from the ASCO presentation, this patient has liver metastases, and in the ASCO presentation was noted that there is a high response rate, 40% of patients respond who are treated with infortimavidotin with liver metastases. So infortimavidotin has FDA approval and will be my first-line choice for this patient. It certainly would although there are no randomized trials comparing it, overall, it seems that this has more activity than the combination of carboplatinum with a gemcitabine. Now, there are clinical trials that are evaluating this patient, this patient, this patient group, but also, of course, do FGFR3 mutational analysis to see if this patient would be eligible to receive ertafitinib. But there are other clinical trials and other agents that are being evaluated in the setting as well. There is a trial that is looking at sastuzumab govotecan, which is a different ADC. It targets a different epitope and delivers a different payload, which is SN38, different from infortimavidotin, which is an atubin agent called MMAE. That trial is, is currently ongoing, accruing patients, and we'll see if sastuzumab Govotekin has sufficient activity to be proved in this particular clinical setting. So we have trials, we have standard of care, and certainly I think the patient should be offered these agents because they potentially can benefit. Excellent. And do you want to carry us to our third and final case? Surely. So Tony is a 72-year-old smoker, retired truck driver, uh, and he quit smoking approximately 20 years ago, and he recently was noted to have gross hematuria. Subsequent evaluation and workup demonstrated muscle invasive urothelial carcinoma on the basis of a TRBT and extensive lymph node and lung metastases on CT imaging. 
his ECOG performance status was one, and his creatinine clearance was uh, 55. And he previously had an LED stent placed for coronary artery disease approximately six years ago, but he has no other relevant medical history and is very, very active. So Arjun, why don't you discuss this case for us? What would you do? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I, I think I can, just like Beverly and Fred before, uh, you know, you and I meet Tony all the time as well. And and this is your your, your classic patient, uh, former heavy smoker, who's just diagnosed with metastatic urethral cancer and is a patient who is eligible for platinum-containing chemotherapy and, and is coming to you with treatment, uh, to have a treatment discussion. And he has the classic medical history that also accompanies patients uh, who have developed this disease. And, you know, patients who are smokers have cardiovascular risk factors, have a little bit of renal dysfunction, a little bit of a rough and tumble crowd. And so you have a lot of options for these patients uh, across the board. And so here you're making the first decision is that is this patient eligible for cisplatin-containing chemotherapy or not? And then if the patient is eligible for cisplatin-containing chemotherapy, we generally approach this patient for that because we know it's improved survival. And in some patients, it can be associated with cures. I want to point out that a GI GFR 55 cc's per minute is a perfectly safe GFR to administer cisplatin-containing chemotherapy. I will point out, on the other hand, though, for regulatory purposes, the FDA considered a GFR of less than 60 to be considered ineligible for cisplatin-containing chemotherapy to allow patients to get on cis-ineligible trials, but in and of itself does not exclude patients to receive cisplatin-based treatment. So I think that's an interesting little wrinkle about how we approach clinical care from a practical standpoint, but then also how the FDA looks at the regulatory definition of cis ineligibility. And I think things are those two things are really, really distinct issues. And I think, you know, Dr. Petrolak, you and I agree on that issue up front, is that a patient like this can probably safely receive cisplatin-based treatment and should be offered that as a first-line approach if they're willing to receive it. Now, in a patient like this, I, I think we would easily be able to administer cisplatin-based treatment. It could be reasonable to check for pd one status. It could you know, influence your decision-making if, let's say, there are other reasons why the patient couldn't receive cisplatinum, and now you're having a conversation about carbo versus first-line immunotherapy. And then in that case, the pd one expression status could be of some relevance. But in either case, if you move forward with platinum-based chemotherapy, then at that point, then you're having a conversation after the patient hopefully achieves stable disease or better, which is very likely, then to have a conversation about maintenance immunotherapy uh, following you know, uh, uh, that disease control uh, versus waiting until progression and then using immunotherapy at the time of progression. Uh, but this is, again, a classic patient that we see receive in the first-line setting. I'll also point out that at, at the time of diagnosis, if you have TURBT tissue demonstrating muscle-invasive disease, that is more than adequate to send for next-generation sequencing. So set it off from the, uh, send that off from the outset. Uh, or if you wanted to get a biopsy of the lung metastasis in this patient, send that off also from the outset because it can take six to eight weeks to get that information back. And you want to have that in your back pocket in the case, in the event that you have an FGFR mutation so that you have that available uh, down the road if you want to use erdafitinib, for example. So this has been a great discussion. Before we wrap up, Dr. Petrolak, like I asked you before, one additional key takeaway from this chapter before we move on to the next one. I think the key takeaway is that we have new agents that are available for the treatment of platinum and elbow disease as evidenced by the recent FDA approval of Enfortimavidotin in this setting. So I think that patients should be offered all possible treatments that are available. Carbogem is really now going by the wayside. 
And again, we need to molecularly phenotype all of our patients to evaluate whether they are eligible to receive an FGFR3 inhibitor during the course of therapy. So thanks so much, Dr. Petrolak. In chapter three, we'll be discussing what to look for in the future for both early to late stage metastatic urethral cancer. So please stay tuned. For those just tuning in, you're listening to CME on ReachMD. I'm Arjun Balar. I'm here today with Dr. Daniel Petrolak. We're discussing recent advances in the management of metastatic urethral cancer. So welcome back. In chapter two, we walked through three unique patient case presentations that we commonly encounter in the clinic. And now in chapter three, uh, Dr. Petrolak and I, we're going to be discussing what the future holds in terms of novel therapeutics from early stage to late stage metastatic urethral cancer. Uh, and I'm going to invite Dr. Petrolak to take it from here. So Dr. Paul, let's get started. We've seen some impressive data from both ASCO-GU and ASCO this year. What new data and potential therapeutic options do you think we might see coming out at ESMO 2021, or even ASCO-GU uh, in, uh, and ASCO in, in uh, the year 2022? Thanks so much, Dr. Petrolak, for that question. I think it's probably a bit too early to say what we're going to see in 2021 and 2022 because, you know, like fine wine, it takes it takes time for these studies to fully accrue and to age and mature and, the you know, the endpoints to finally be ready to be presented. So I don't think we're going to see practice-changing data at the end of this year or next year. But um, there are a number of studies in both early-stage and late-stage bladder cancer that I'm really excited about uh, that I think we may see in the years ahead. Uh, and I want to quickly Run through those studies, and I'll break it down in terms of both early stage bladder cancer and late stage. Uh, first, begin with late stage uh, because that's been mostly what we've talked about today. I'll first talk about you know some of the exciting combinations that we are seeing uh, with both immunotherapy and antibody drug conjugates. Two studies that really stand out to me that I think are practice changing and may completely change how we treat metastatic urethral cancer in the first line setting. Cohort K of EV103. This is the randomized first line trial of EV Pembro versus EV alone in the first line treatment of patients who have metastatic urethral cancer that are ineligible for cisplatin-containing chemotherapy. The target enrollment is about 150 patients. We're almost there in terms of enrollment. And this is a study that I think will really understand what the role is for the combination and also understand the contribution of components, EV versus EV Pembro, and maybe even inform just how synergistic this combination is in the first line setting and can and inform to a larger degree, you know, what the role can be in, in, in the broader patient population. The larger study is EV302. This was initially designed as a three-arm study that quickly tapered down to a two-arm trial. And this study is probably the largest practice-changing trial that we should expect in the coming years. This is platinum gem cytobine, which includes cisgem or carbogem versus EV plus Pembro all comers with first-line metastatic urethral cancer. And this is the study that I think is going to completely redefine how we treat metastatic disease in the first-line setting. This study is still early in its enrollment. I don't expect data for this study in in the next several years because it has two co-primary endpoints, both PFS and OS, but I think most of us are going to be hanging our hat on the OS data. And that's going to take some time, especially since, you know, the OS data so far for EV Pembro is so promising. And also there's also a lot of maintenance use of immunotherapy and so that's also going to really influence uh, potentially some of the outcomes uh, and in such a time-to-event uh, analysis. So it's going to be several years before we see data from that study. The other study to look out for is the TROPIC study, and this is the study that looks at sesotizumab govitecan versus single-agent dealer's choice chemotherapy in kind of the third-line setting after platinum-based chemotherapy and immunotherapy, and, and looks at the role for this you know, ad- additional uh, antibody drug conjugate, sesotizumab govitecan, which 
which targets trope two. The payload is SN38. Uh, you know, it's linked through a hydrolyzable linker, and it adds to our armamentarium in addition to infortimab vidotin. And again, we have more options now than we ever did before in metastatic urothelial cancer. And uh, this drug was recently uh, received accelerated approval earlier this year. But we really need to understand: does it improve survival um, in this uh, you know heavily you know treatment refractory setting? And this study is currently ongoing, and, and we look forward to this data. And hopefully, it will demonstrate a survival benefit, much like infortimab vidotin did in the EV301 data set. Now, let me pivot over to early stage disease. This is where I think you know immunotherapy and antibody drug conjugates uh, have still the potential to have even more significant impact um, in muscle invasive early stage disease. There are two concepts that are kind of uh, you know prevailing in this setting. One is kind of a neoadjuvant, adjuvant, or perioperative approach. Several trials are looking at the role of immunotherapy in combination with chemotherapy. Multiple sponsors. It's impossible for me to go through all the trials, but in essence, many trials are looking at PD-1 axis inhibitors in combination with cisplatin-based chemotherapy, where we're essentially randomizing patients to cisplatin-based chemotherapy with or without a PD-1 axis inhibitor, followed by cystectomy, with some adjuvant component of additional treatment afterwards to see if we can further improve outcomes in patients with localized muscle invasive bladder cancer, improve disease-free survival and overall survival, and get more cures by adding immunotherapy to standard cisplatin-based chemotherapy and cystectomy. There's also, for patients who are cis ineligible, we're looking at the role for immunotherapy as well in this setting and also adding infortimab vidotin in this setting. And there's a pivotal study. There's a three-arm study of uh, cystectomy alone versus Pembro cystectomy followed by adjuvant Pembro, and a third arm of EV Pembro cystectomy followed by EV Pembro as well. And I think this is one of the really exciting trials that may look at the role for ADCs plus Pembrolizumab in the perioperative setting. So in summary, all of these trials are really exciting studies, but are still maturing and at least several years before we see some of these studies uh, read out in the future. So let me hand it over back to you, Dr. Petrolak. Um, I've covered a lot of studies that are currently ongoing, but we see these ADCs now are currently approved. They're used in clinical practice in Fortimab, Vidotin, Nectin-4, uh, MMAE, Sastizumab, Govotecan, Trope-2, SN38. These are very, very different drugs and have unique safety and efficacy profiles. Can you guide us through how clinicians should use them in clinical practice? So I think it's important. Obviously, we have great clinical trial data, but it's important for clinicians in the community to be comfortable with using these drugs. And unfortunately, about over 50% of clinicians are less than confident in using ADCs and second-line systemic therapy as opposed to the immune checkpoint inhibitors. And they're also less confident in using the ADCs in cisplatin ineligible patients with locally advanced or metastatic urothelial carcinomas compared to chimpsibine and carboplatinum. So how can we improve the comfort level of physicians in using these drugs. Really, the issue comes down to the management of toxicities, which are different for ertafitinib, for infortimabidotin, as well as sasituzumab. Now, in terms of which drug to use, we really don't have good data, although the perception is, is that 39% of clinicians will believe that ertafitinib is more effective than NADC in those patients with locally advanced or metastatic urothelial carcinoma who harbor FGFR3 mutations. Unfortunately, we don't have randomized data, which either proves or disproves that hypothesis, but these drugs can be used in sequence. In fact, we have a case that was presented at the ESMO meeting a couple of years ago on the TROPHY trial, where a patient received initially ortenfortimabvidotin, responded, and then progressed and received sasituzumab. Certainly, I've seen responses anecdotally 
to all three drugs. And I think that the, the patient should be offered the opportunity to receive these drugs if they are eligible. So we don't have randomized data that compares these agents, but certainly there are trials that are being considered that will answer this particular question. Thank you so much, Dr. Petrolak. And I think it's pretty clear that you know the field is rapidly evolving. And with all these new treatments that are currently available, I think the, the key takeaway here is, is that each drug is unique, whether it's ertafitinib, cestizumab, govotecan, or, or infortimabidotin. Since each time the target is different, the mechanism of action is different, there's no reason to believe that these drugs are cross-resistant. So sequencing these drugs is ultimately a bit of an art of medicine, a little bit of the data, and just getting comfortable with the unique safety profiles and making sure that patients have access to these drugs, ultimately to improve clinical outcomes. So this has been a wonderful discussion. This is unfortunately all the time that we have today, but I wanted to thank our audience for listening in. Thank you, Dr. Petrolak, for joining me and sharing all of your valuable insights. And it was great to speak with you today. Thanks so much for joining us. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Prova Education. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com Prova. Thank you for listening.